0: All right. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and get started. I'd like to introduce myself first. I'm Craig Tuminaro. I'm the Director of uh, Museum Interpretation at Drayton Hall, which is a a historic site of the National Trust located in Charleston, South Carolina. Joining me today on our panel is Aaron Carlson-Mast, who is the Curator and Site Administrator at the President Lincoln's Cottage in uh, Washington, D.C., also a National Trust Historic Site, and Kara Eady. Uh, who is the Visitor Services and Marketing Coordinator at the General Lew Wallace Study and Museum in Crawfordsville, uh, Indiana. And what we're going to be talking about is uh, this brave new world we've all been thrust into, uh, specifically looking at technology, Web 2.0, social media, and historic sites and how we can work with these new tools that have been presented to us in effective ways to engage current and potentially new audiences. So, many of us, I'm willing to say, have heard the call to use these tools in interesting and new ways, uh, but how have we responded? And I'm guessing probably in a variety, in, in equally diverse, uh, ways with fear, with frustration that 's me by the way, with resignation, or do some of you have this all under control and see this is all just kind of easy, easy to do? But one of my questions in, in using all of this is, is it enough to just be out there to just say, okay we 're going to start a Facebook page uh, we 're going to start twittering but how are we at historic sites using these tools in effective ways to do more than just put a flag out there and say, okay, we're out there, we're doing it. So, From my own experience, we've done a lot of experimentation. We have tried a lot of different things, but again, my my question, my driving question in putting this session together is how have we done things that are really effective for our sites? How are people How are you all, and we're going to want to hear from you all, how are you all using this to make a difference at your site? There's a really interesting article in the um, July and August uh, issue of Museum, uh, the AAM publication, where uh, Nina Simon in her article, Bait and Switch, poses this question. Is the web becoming a participatory ghetto, a dumping ground of experimentation? And when I read that, I said, this is, this is, this are, that's great language, because that's what I think it, it's happening a lot, that people are trying this stuff, they're being influenced and saying, hearing all this, it's all out there right now. I mean, you go on CNN and they're Twittering and they're putting things on Facebook and using all sorts of social media. But in what ways are these experiments kind of paying off? What, which exper- experiments are working and which ones are, 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 becoming, are showing us that they're not perhaps the most effective use of our time? And in this environment, when time equals money, uh, when resources are being stretched, the question that looms large in my mind is, is it acceptable for us to spend lots of time investing in these social media outlets, in technology, when the payoff is still unknown, Uh, when there's not necessarily a, a clear formula that, that has been invented to say, put the time in and you're going to see this result. You're going to see this many more people coming to your site, this many more people becoming members, this many more people becoming uh, supporters in whatever way they might through these outlets. So another question that, that looms large is, how can we evaluate the impact of this, experimenta- of this experimentation? I think Max Van Balgoy, who's giving a session right now, might be answering some of these questions. So I'm posing them. He's answering them. <laughs> yeah. So also, how, when we're looking at um, measuring this impact, what are the ways that we can come up with to say, this is, this is how we can show a return on investment? Is it visitors through the door? Is it a certain number of new members? Is it um, a certain number of increase in your donations? And what are the realistic uh, expectations we should have for that? And if you're like me, you're kind of struggling. Well, which ones do we choose? Do we start Twittering? Do we uh, invest all of our time in our blog? Do we invest all of our time in cell phone tours? Which, which of these things that, that's now out there that's new um, and potentially somewhat untested, which are going to have the biggest impact for us? And what does, then, an engaged visitor look like, both online and, uh, and at your site? Um, one of the things that we've struggled with, and I'll talk a little bit about when I'm talking about our efforts at Drayton Hall specifically, is what this slide kind of shows, is somebody at your site staring at a piece of technology and not taking their eyes off of their iPod, their DVD player, their um, handheld wand of, of some sort, and looking around them at the site itself. So again, are these new audiences, fans, commentators, bloggers, coming into your site? Are they getting engaged and supporting you? Or are they just saying, hey, I found this really cool blog. I found this really cool Facebook site, and I'm going to become a fan of that. What does that mean? How do we really capture those people and bring them in? So some advantages. It can be a time saver. Facebook, blogging, at least for us, has definitely been a time saver in a lot of ways. Again, you get to draw in non-traditional audiences. Um, It allows allows you to share a lot of information about what's going on at your site. Um, Also, not just kind of as a news posting, but allows you to share uh, the institutional philosophy that you might have, um, the discussions that are going on behind the scenes, and the ways that those philosophies and those discussions are being put into practice. It also keeps your image fresh. It combats the idea that so many of us I think fight with and struggle with in audiences and say oh that historic site yeah I've been there I've done that I went there as a fourth grader or I went there three years ago when my family was in town I don't need to go back there. And also the tools that are being presented to us are are becoming easier to use both for ourselves you know I'm willing to venture to say that the majority of folks here in this room are we're not trained in uh, computer science or social networking. So there's a learning curve, both for most people in institutions and also for kind of traditional audiences, the people that, are, uh, that have been engaged with you as a current audience, perhaps for weeks, months, or years. Now, there's also drawbacks. Can, uh, while you can save time, can you also waste time on this? And I, for myself, yes, absolutely. I've wasted a lot of time trying to figure this stuff out. Is there also a risk of confusion? Will the, the users, the, the visitors online suddenly get the, these just multitude of voices, all these varying perspectives, and then kind of figure out, well, what is your message? It can easily get out of control. Fear of technology, that's something that um, we deal with. And I'll talk about that in, in, my, in talking about what we've done at Drayton Hall. Um, are perhaps some of our traditional audiences fearful of these new ways because they're just unfamiliar with them. Then one of the the key concerns that we have also is the ongoing need to keep working with this stuff to really devote an ongoing, um, to put an ongoing investment of time and resources to keep it fresh. Unlike a, a traditional or standard website that you can kind of work on and work on for hours and hours, weeks and weeks, and then you get it live, and you put it up there, and it's wonderful, and it does its thing blogging, Facebooking, you really need to um, task someone with putting a lot of time and effort into keeping it fresh. I mean, we've all probably gone to websites and you see that hasn't been updated since 2003 or 2008 even. You think, oh well, this is out of date, this isn't new. You really need to put someone on that. And then do your non-traditional audiences again turn into traditional visitors or supporters? One of the questions that Nina Simon raised in uh, in her article was you can really uh, have two different types of institutions one your physical site and two your your online representation and sometimes those two do not match up so if you get someone that's going to become a supporter online or engaged online and then they actually make the effort to get to your site does your actual site represent what they saw if they're seeing Uh, all sorts of levels of transparency, all sorts of discussion, and they get to your site and discover that it's a one-way form of communication, that's going to leave a lot of people wanting. So, our goal today is to talk about developing strategies um, and also establishing your goals. What do you want to get out of this and how are you going to to get to a point to say yes this is working or no this is not. So what we're going to do is each spend about 10 or 12 minutes talking about different efforts at each of our sites and then open up uh, the discussion to all of you to get your ideas. What we're talking about are just three different um, projects, three different efforts at each of our sites. But I'm sure you all have lots of experience in this as well. So the the point of this was to raise many questions and get answers from you that I wanted to hear. So very tricky getting you all to work for me. All right, so I'm going to talk about um, an effort we have undertaken at Drayton Hall to interpret our landscape. Um, That is through The Voices of Drayton Hall, which uh, in its first iteration is an interactive DVD that visitors use on site to learn the story of the landscape. We started out with with some questions. How can historic sites and communities better engage the public through the use of new technology in interpretive programs in order to, one, engage visitors, self-directed learning increase public access to museums, uh, museum collections and histories, understand, interpret um, absent landscapes, and then also expand economic opportunities. Show me the money again. Thank you, Tom Cruise. How can technology enable people to be more in charge of what they learn? And then how can technology help historic sites, museums, communities interpret their history more completely and in a more personalized manner? Uh, We responded to uh, different. comments, different uh, sources that were saying that people now want to be more in control of their experiences at historic sites and at museums. And so we went, in putting together this uh, product, this uh, DVD, we, we looked at ways to, to give people that control. But what we also found is that people want a narrative that makes sense. So you you can't just kind of say, here's all the information, put it out there, and let people navigate their own own way through it. You also have to provide something of a framework. So here we are. This is Drayton Hall, built in 1738, uh, owned by seven generations of the Drayton family until 1974, none of whom made substantial alterations to the main house itself. Uh, This is the way it's seen um, today from the air, Uh, the main house uh, largely in an open field. Um, It's never the way that Drayton Hall was intended to be seen. There were outbuildings. You can see uh, the two footprints of outbuildings, one on either side. There were uh, at one time as many as 30 other outbuildings. So while the main house has remained relatively unchanged, the landscape around it has has changed quite dramatically. Today a visitor to Drayton Hall goes through the main house um, on a guided tour, but the landscape has for, for many years really had an equally compelling story that has, uh, that was not being told or shared with visitors. Our mission is to preserve and interpret Drayton Hall and its environs in order to educate the public and inspire people to embrace historic preservation. So here are just some screenshots of um, the main house, Um, interiors, the interior is left unfurnished so we can tell that story of seven generations of um, ownership and occupation. Again guided tours. Um, a key component of what we do. We also have a program in African-American history that goes deeper than uh, what an hour-long or 50-minute long house tour will allow. Uh, We try to make that as interactive as possible. But it's a 45-minute program. We try to cover 300 years of African-American history. Very, very difficult. But one of the things that we found is. Again, this program was distilled from a variety of sources, but also responding to a uh, visitor's needs to get more information, but at the same time to come, spend a reasonable amount of time, not necessarily all day, and then move on and visit another site um, in the area or head back down to downtown Charleston. But we have in our collection a number of items that we are currently unable to share with visitors. Objects found in archaeological investigations, um, documents, photographs, family stories. Uh, These are different shots of members of the Drayton family, different time time periods. And then also stories from the African-American community that uh, supported Drayton Hall for many years and existed side by side with the Drayton family. And here we have uh, a man named Richmond Bowens, born on the site in 1908, the grandson of a former slave on the property, spent his youth at Drayton Hall, and then returned in the 1970s where he served as first as a gatekeeper and then later as an interpreter, sitting on the uh, porch of a house his family once occupied, sharing stories of what it was like to grow up there, um, sharing stories that he had heard at the, um, at the knee of his grandparents um, and at other members of the community. And we have oral histories, both um, audio and video, that we uh, have to share with visitors but are currently challenged with sharing as we do not have a museum or interpretive center or something of that sort. So we were fortunate to partner with the History Channel to uh, produce this interactive DVD. It uh, ranges through 11 different stations, 11 different spots on our landscape to tell about how that different area of the property developed and changed over time. And we really envisioned this as a companion to the main house but we uh, wanted it to be told through the voices of the people that um, knew the site and knew the history best. So visitors can come to our museum shop and for a nominal fee rent a handheld player. It's a very cheap off-the-shelf product, uh, cost about hundred dollars each, and they have um, all-day uh, use of that unit so they can watch part of it, experience part of it before a house tour or um, in its entirety before the house tour or after the house tour. You don't just have to kind of do it at a short, for a short period of time and hand it back in. All right, what I'd like to do now is just play a clip from the DVD so you can get a sense of what we Try to accomplish. I apologize not able to get video uh, Drayton
1: Hall was a home, but from the 1740s to the Civil War, it also stood at the heart of a working plantation. The woods and open ground ahead of you were once cleared fields where rice was cultivated. Everybody here. Outbuildings dotted the landscape, much like those seen here. The higher ground along the drive once produced indigo and later cotton. Fruits and vegetables were also grown here for all the plantation residents. And before the Civil War, the majority of these residents were enslaved. Records show that as many as 181 men, women, and children lived in bondage on this land.
2: Prior to recent times, when African Americans came to the plantations, they didn't see themselves represented. Instead, they saw big fine houses. Discussions about the architecture and the furniture and things that really didn't relate to the presence of Africans and African-Americans in slavery here So in in many cases they they were disappointed and didn't feel connected to it But I think within the last five to ten years in some places at least There's been an attempt to include the African-American experience uh, on these plantations But still the the problem is getting African-Americans to come who wants to come to a slave plantation that represents sadness brutality things that you can't feel good about
3: when I first came to Drayton Hall my first visit here was very emotional I felt the pains and the agony of my ancestors I felt like they were someplace they didn't want to be but they were brought here and they had to survive. Now I feel differently because I feel like I have a place at Drayton Hall to tell the story of my ancestors to pass on to the next generation the history of slavery. It gives me a sense of culture, it gives me a sense of heritage, it gives me a sense of loving my ancestors because they were strong people. They survived the hardship.
0: So That just is a a small clip. The the whole program runs about about an hour and what that clip showed um, obviously a lot of emotional content but it, it It did it through interview, it did it through imagery that was uh, specific to Drayton Hall and then also imagery that was uh, appropriate to the period. We couldn't tell, we couldn't fill in um, some of the the needed imagery with things from our own collection. So we partnered with a lot of local institutions to find appropriate imagery to use. So now where we're going with this. Um, Now that we have these video clips, we're looking at uh, making an um, an iPhone uh, application so folks um, right in their very own hands will be able to have access to this video and using the gps capability of the iphone move from location to location on the grounds of drayton hall and access these tracks we're also um, taking video that we now just post on youtube and thinking about ways that we can do basically behind the scenes tours with curators kind of curator types or a director of preservation or a horticulturist or other scholars, and putting that just on, you're burning it onto DVDs on somebody's computer, and then, now that we have the equipment, uh, basically just putting those DVDs right into the DVD players and folks can kind of get that fresh moment, uh, kind of of the moment sensibility in a video out on the property as well. Um, And just some figures uh, to help you all kind of put this into perspective. Um, and some of these figures are going to be uh, used to contrast with uh, things that Aaron and um, Kara will be talking about later. Our, our annual on-site visitation is about 50,000 visitors per year. Um, of that, about 10,000, 9,000 to 10,000 are school-age visitors. Um, our website gets about 170,000 views per year. We've launched a blog last September. We've had a pretty good uh, response on that. Uh, We have about, I think, only 25 to 30 postings at the moment. Um, Rentals of the DVD since its launch, 359. Um, Sales of it have have been more robust than on-site rentals. So we're seeing um, a pretty good revenue stream from that. And then our Facebook page is, uh, we have 276 fans. Yes, Yes, ma'am. Actually, we found that that's not been a very high. um, We have not seen a a lot of people doing that. Uh, Probably, I think, about 20. All right, so I've come to the end of my particular component of the presentation. But if any of you have questions or comments uh, that you want to just ask me one on one, uh, you can send me an email or we can talk later. I've taken up too much of my allotted time. And I'm going to pass it over to uh, Kara.
4: a couple more chairs here in the front if anyone wants to come on in and make yourselves comfortable. I've had to sit on the floor in the back of a room before and it's not that comfy. (laughs) My name is Kara Eady and I'm the Visitor Services and Marketing Coordinator at the General Lew Wallace Study and Museum in Crawfordsville, Indiana. It's about an hour west of here and we're a very small museum that's Centered around the legacy of Civil War General Major Major General Lou Wallace, and it is situated on the site where he wrote his masterwork, a little novel called Ben Hur. Hopefully, you've heard of it. Hopefully. We are also a 2008 uh, National Medal Award winner, the National Medal for Museum Service from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Um, I've never had a chance to brag about that, so that's my one chance to brag, and I won't do it anymore. <laughs> Let's. See. We can use it. Social media. Loosely defined, it's a category of websites that rely on user interaction and user generated content. Some of these tools include blogs, message boards, podcasts, microblogs, live streams, bookmarks, networks, communities, wikis, and video blogs. <sighs> I'm sure some of you have seen a lot of these sites. I'm sure some of you use many of these sites. If there's anyone in here that uses all of these sites, You might want to go outside and get a deep breath of fresh air or something, (laughs) take a lie down. (laughs) The newness of social media may seem incongruous with many of our historical sites. What if your site, like mine, centers around a historical figure from the 19th century, or even earlier? How do you reconcile all this rapidly growing new technology with a man who wrote with a quill pen? And if we do try to dive into social media, how do we know which things to try? A common mistake with social media is to t- want to try everything out there, to immerse yourself in the medium, and th- because that's what everyone's doing. Everyone's trying Twitter, we got to try Twitter. But when you spread yourself too thin in social media and forget your central message, you run the risk of turning your beautiful historic building, this is mine, and don't most of us have some beautiful historic buildings, into something like this. <laughs> A noisy, incomprehensible mess that has completely lost sight of its mission. What we have to keep in mind when dealing with social media is that the simple initiatives often have the greatest impact. There's an amazingly interconnected conversation going on online right now. And one can be amazed at how much good can be done just by listening to the conversation, responding to a few people, and proving that there is life out there in the ether but for all its simplicity social media is still very important social networking marks an entirely new and increasingly popular method of building awareness which is a crucial one of every one of our historical sites main objectives one of the most popular social networking sites on the internet right now is facebook once strictly the domain of college and high school students facebook has grown 70.8 percent in u.s users in the last six months alone with a lot of that growth being men and women aged 35 to 65 years of age, which is pretty much our target demographic. Facebook continues to grow because of its ability to be customized, and this is perfectly suited to a historic site's many different needs. While individuals create their own profiles where they can share information or connect with their friends, businesses and organizations create pages. Now, Facebook has recently refurbished their pages to work, eh, to look and behave similar to an individual's profile. Where an individual has friends, a profile has fans. And an organization can update their status, they can post blog posts, they can share interesting photos, videos, and links. And these things show up on the constantly updating news feeds of their fans. This keeps your news fresh in the minds of your visitors and makes information easy to propagate around the web. As you can see in this, in this screenshot, I took a picture of something just as simple as a, a really interesting car in our parking lot. I get bored sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and this, Facebook gives you the opportunity, or gives your users the opportunity to comment on what you've posted, to like what you've posted, or to share what you've posted with their friends. And if they find it interesting, their friends can post it to their friends, and so on and so on. It has the chance to become pretty viral. Other ways to engage with audiences on Facebook are through groups uh, organized around similar interests, Um, offline events that you're hosting that you invite your online friends to, Uh, special online quizzes that revolve around your mission. AAM has a great one that's called, What Kind of Museum Would You Be? I'm a historic house, by the way. (laughs) even causes through which your fans and their friends can donate money to your nonprofit organization now in a perfect world all of your Facebook initiatives would be responded to enthusiastically and you as page administrator could interact with them in a way that enriches their and your online experience in this situation we were having a wedding on our grounds and I took a picture of the setup and said oh we're having a wedding everyone here should too and lo and behold one of our future brides comment and said, I'm having a wedding here on the 26th. And I said, oh, that's going to be great. The leaves are changing. And she said, yeah,
3: I know. know." So
4: (laughs) did that enhance her online experience? Uh, I'd like to think so. (laughs) Thankfully, to keep track of your less vocal fans, uh, Facebook has an extensive database of constantly updating analytics that they call insights that, indeed, give the page's administrator valuable insights on who your fans are. Which fans have interacted with you that week? Which kind of posts they most respond to? Even what country they're from and what language they speak? Arrr, <laughs> A picture says a thousand words. And photos of your site and events can be crucial in raising awareness. This is why I love Flickr, and a lot of other people do too. As of June 2009, Flickr claims to host over 3.6 billion Images now with a free account users can upload up to a hundred megabytes of Images and two videos every month and these photos and images can be Captioned they can be geotagged edited and categorized into sets and collections. So they're easy for your viewers to find With every photo you have the opportunity to interact with an audience in this instance I posted a photograph of one of our recent events which was our annual civil war encampment and we got comments from people who had attended the encampment, with overwhelmingly positive comments about how much they love the people that we hire. This helps us next year when we're planning our next encampment to hopefully hire the same people. Oh wait, there. Let's go back. <laughs> um, they, your your visitors can also comment on your photos. They can add notes to your photos. They can even add your pictures to their blogs while your credit and your copyright and the links to your Flickr page remain intact, which again gives your viewers the opportunity to share your information with their friends. Flickr photos can also be inserted directly into your blog so you don't have to upload an image in the same place, or in different places two times. And if you don't have a blog, everyone should have a blog. Please, please do. Even videos can be seamlessly integrated into your blog with no jarring change in styles, no extra time spent, and no loss in video quality. Joining a Flickr group is a good way to get your photos to the masses. The Indiana Office of Tourism Development hosts a group—a great group called Visit Indiana, which gives viewers a vibrant look at life in the Hoosier State and pairs it with an equally vibrant online discussion. I administer a Flickr group called Visiting the General Lew Wallace Study Museum that accepts photographs that people have taken on our grounds. Which not only helps me to spread awareness of my site, but gives me a great idea of how viewers view my museum. I can gauge with just a glance which events are the most popular and which areas or artifacts in my museum attract the most interest. This also informs my interpretive goals. I can see what people think is interesting in my museum and help to work that more into my tours. In a lot of ways, your past visitors can help to spread your mission throughout the web just by sharing a photo of a fascinating object and what they learned about it. But how can you tell if your Flickr account is more than just an online photo archive? With Flickr's stats feature available to members who upgrade to a pro account, you can access daily visitor statistics for your entire account or for each individual photo, and you can get lists of your most interesting and your most heavily visited photographs. Twitter. Ha ah, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter at the moment is the darling of social media. It's got otherwise normal people saying things like, I tweeted seven times today, or I just saw the fail whale. People are using at signs and hashtags and regular conversation and boiling down complex streams of thought into 140 characters or less. Uh, Twitter Twitter.com was the fastest-growing web brand in May 2009, growing 1,448% since May 2008, which includes 18.2 million unique visitors. Everyone, it seems, is tweeting. Twitter is a micro-blogging service that enables its users to send text-based messages known as tweets. Tweets are posts of up to 140 characters that are displayed on the author's profile page, and delivered to their subscribers who are known as followers we use Twitter basically to post interesting nuggets of information relating to our site Ben her is a popular one and we use a feed service called Twitter feed to automatically notify our Twitter followers whenever we have a new blog post or we upload new photographs or videos on Flickr now Twitter is fascinating but it's not my first choice for historic sites And it's probably the social media tool that I use most sporadically. The real power of Twitter is not in its publishing, but in its up-to-the-second searching. When I tweet something on behalf of our museum to our whole 148 followers, the chance for interaction is pretty rare. Unfortunately, people don't sit on my Twitter page waiting for me to tweet about something. But the conversation within Twitter is gigantic, and it's happening very fast, and chances are... That your brand or your central figure or your historical genre is currently being discussed and with twitter this gives you the opportunity to find these conversations and connect in this interchange i found i searched for the phrase wallace study and i found a gentleman who posted a photograph of our site on his twitter page so i responded to him saying i hope you enjoyed your visit it took all of you know two seconds and not only did he respond to me saying indeed we did but he passed our information on to his friends which helped us to gain followers now did that translate into an on-site visit or more memberships or extra donations with twitter it's kind of hard to tell fortunately there are all sorts of new programs being created that make it easier to monitor the twitter conversation with very little effort or time spent i use a program here called TweetDeck that monitors twitter in real time and lets me know when people tweet about my search parameters like lou wallace Ben her or wallace study From there, I can choose to respond to someone's tweet, retweet their message to my followers, direct message the individual, view their profile, email their tweet to someone, reference their tweet in a tweet of my own. The possibilities are pretty limitless. TweetDeck runs in the background of my computer while I do other things, and it only notifies me when the Twitter conversation turns my way. If you'd like to take part the Twitter conversation and you want something easier to do it with you can Google Twitter applications you can find many many different uh, applications that work basically the same way as I close up I just want to give you a couple of uh, social media do's and don'ts do take the time to sketch out a little bit of a social media strategy and get the support of your higher-ups your boss or your board because if you don't you're going to be constantly justifying the time that you spend online to someone who may not see the inherent value in social media. Do provide interesting content and do it do it pretty regularly. Uh, you'll get a lot of, you'll get a few followers and fans who, who stick with you just because they think it's fascinating to connect with their favorite museum or historical site on the internet. but that novelty is going to go away pretty fast unless you give them something fascinating to learn from or something they can turn they can pass on to their friends. Do stick to your mission. Social media can become an all-encompassing, time-sucking monster if you don't narrow your mission down to exactly what's going to help your museum. When you're doing something with social media, ask yourself, is this furthering my institution's mission? And if it's not, stop doing it. Do interact with your audiences. Don't be afraid to talk to people. There's a lot of conversation going on online, and a lot of it could be about you. So ask people, have you been to my site? How did you like your visit? Do you have any suggestions? Just don't spend a lot of time online searching for everyone who's ever spoken about the Civil War, for example. This is a prime uh, example of how not to spend your time. Do respond to things that are being said about you, but do not react. The Internet is lousy with, (laughs) with stories of CEOs of huge corporations, people who should know better who uh, respond to something, overreact to something that was said on the web with, ah, well, your mother wears combat boots, and uh, <laughs> scandal and loss of credibility soon follow. Don't try everything out there just because it's out there. You'll find that every other day something new is developed that's the, that's the latest and the greatest and the absolute it thing to try. But if it does not connect you with your audience, it is not worth your effort. But do not underestimate your time investment. There are lots of tips and tricks you can do with social media. You can upload something on Flickr that automatically posts to your blog, that lets your Twitter know and updates your Facebook page. But it still does take quite a bit of time to learn how to do those tricks. And you're going to want to interact with your audiences on a day-to-day basis. So I suggest drawing up some kind of a schedule where in the morning you take a half an hour and respond to your Twitter followers or your Facebook fans and then get back to your regular work. In the afternoon, post a video or post something new on your blog, but do it consistently so your fans always have something new to find out about. There are a lot of people out there talking about your areas of expertise. And with social media, you have this valuable chance to talk back. That's all I've got. So um, we are going to be entertaining a lot of questions afterwards. And uh, if you need to get in touch with me, there's my information. So thanks for listening.
5: My name is Erin Carlson-Mast, and I'm the curator at President Lincoln's Cottage in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Craig. How many of you, if I could just get a quick show of hands, have heard of President Lincoln's Cottage before? How many of you have visited our site? Great. Excellent. Happy to hear that. Um, It was built, the cottage was built in 1842 for a a prominent banker and sold to the federal government in 1851 for use as a soldier's home. And it still has that same purpose today. Um, So it's still all federally owned property. The cottage is located on 272 acres of green space in northwest Washington, D.C., but we're three miles off the mall. And so we don't get the typical D.C. visitor that you might expect. Um, We have... Targeted attendance, basically what we've done is restricted tour size, and so even at our absolute maximum, if we filled every tour of every day, every slot we have open, the most we would probably be able to fit through the cottage is 60,000 visitors. So in our first year open to the public, we had 30,000 visitors, but the caveat to that is that we did have to turn people away on days when all of our tours were booked up. The cottage has its primary significance because of the fact that the Lincoln family was invited to live there during Lincoln's presidency. So all told, um, Lincoln wound up spending about a quarter of his presidency living at the soldier's home, and it was here that he developed the Emancipation Proclamation in his first season living at the home. Um, In 1999, the house had fallen into disrepair. It had been in continuous use over its history. Um, It served as a presidential retreat for Hayes and Arthur, in addition to Lincoln. Um, Basically, in 1999, the National Trust for Historic Preservation became involved with the project, formed a cooperative agreement with the Armed Forces Retirement Home to do the research, fundraising, and steward the development and management of the site. So as I mentioned, we opened to the public for the first time in history in 2008. Um, this is the first time that people were able to come and visit and get an interpretation, a comprehensive interpretation of the site. Up until that point, um, interpretation had really been limited to ad hoc tours that you might get if you had a family member who lived or worked at the home, or souvenir booklets. But For the last 50 years or so, the site was not accessible to the public, period. And so this is the first time in 50 years that even people from the neighborhood have been able to come inside the gates. To give you a general overview of our tour style, we have some rooms that are period furnished. All tours are guided and guide led. Um, in addition to the conversation you're having with a guide, we have audio and visual ma- media that's used. We also, in the upstairs section, have some quotes on the wall. And then we use historic images to sort of support the story because the rooms are not fully furnished, it's minimally furnished. We didn't want to end up Uh, enter into too much conjecture um, because during the last 10 years we've really been doing a lot of research that had never been done before about the history of the site. So we're still learning more every day. We also have the adjacent Robert H. Smith Visitor Education Center which was built in 1905 and we also have a long-term lease agreement with the home for this building. Um, we sustainably rehabilitated this building, and in April 2009, we got LEED Gold certification, making it the first National Trust uh, building. Thank you. Um, Lisa, that's my bragging rights. <laughs> um, and so that's really exciting for us. We support the Trust sustainability initiative through this building in a lot of ways. We have a lot of school groups or um, graduate student groups come out to learn more about this building. Um, but keep in mind that you know our story is really focused on Lincoln and his presidency, yet this story of preservation and sustainability is also part of our operation side mission in a way. These are the different kinds of social media we're currently using right now um, at this moment. Um, for YouTube, Facebook, and Gosaic, it's all basically brand new for us. We've only been using those um, items for three months or less. Gosaic is actually in its infancy and it is just getting ready to launch um, we have a full-time staff of seven, a part-time staff of two, and we have eight interpreters um, who are part and out, part-time and part and hourly. Um, this is a staff trip to Montpelier recently, and our director is the only one actually of full-time staff not f- photographed here. But Just to give you an idea of how much time we invest in all the media, social media and online media we're using, um, myself and Allison Mitchell, our development coordinator, are the two that are sort of in charge of some of these different um, online tools. I'm sort of in charge of our complete web strategy and online presence. Allison focuses a lot more on Facebook and YouTube now and Gosaic than I do. But everyone in this picture gets a gold star for participation because everyone at our site does contribute whether it's through a blog entry or um, letting us know about something that they think we should post on Facebook. And I actually did Um, Just to give you an idea, too, I want to let you know about how much time we actually spend per week. We spend about, um, Allison and I combined, spend about 30 minutes um, on YouTube. Part of that's because it's new for us, so we're still uploading a lot of information, so it's a little bit more of a time drain at this moment. Um, About 15 minutes on Flickr, um, about one to two hours on Facebook, and about two hours on um, the WordPress blog. That doesn't necessarily include time. Other people are spending on our staff writing entries that then I might have to reformat and edit and stuff like that. But to give you a general idea, so it's basically if you combine all that time, it would be one full day a week that's being used up time-wise, if you think about you know, five to seven hours of time being used, being spent on something like that. Um, our Flickr account, Uh, feeds into our blog and we started our WordPress blog in 2007 at which point WordPress did not have a really reliable image feature and so you pretty much had to have a separate imaging site you used um, in order to feed images into your WordPress blog so we um, got on Flickr for that specific reason but it really has been a great way for us to reach out to new audiences in particular the very active DC amateur photography audience Um, and through that, of all the images that we have here, I think there are um, 401 of the images are our own. There are 890 images that are tagged Lincoln Cottage, and our personal album has 58,000 hits. And we have a bunch of photo albums within that, one of the most popular ones being the photo album we did for our grand opening ceremony a year and a half ago. Um, but what you're seeing here is mostly user-generated content. In fact, all of these images Are ones not taken by anyone on our staff and the image at the bottom is one of my favorite photos of the site and people have been really um, willing to let us use these for educational um, use up front without any sort of fear or anything like that and for us it's a really great way you know more people in DC end up finding out about us through this because maybe they have an interest in photography Um, and we've been able to follow some of people's dialogues about you know oh where is that and you know, so more people get interested, more people want to come out and take photographs at our site. Does that make them paying customers? Not necessarily. Um, As I mentioned, we just got started using YouTube about two months ago. We have about 15 videos of the cottage and very few of those are ones we've actually done. We decided that we would really sort of embrace YouTube as a way of expanding the reach of a successful program we had in our first year open to the public called Cottage Conversations. Um, Because of the space we occupy on the site, we don't have any sort of auditorium where you can fit 200, 300 people, but our Cottage Conversations series was so successful that it started selling out. We can only fit about 50 people in the cottage for this lecture series. And so um, we managed to, through the success of that program, Get a $750 grant to purchase, you know, a flip um, recorder so that we could film things, um, a microphone um, set lapel set and things like that in order to film all of our Cottage Conversations this year and put them all on YouTube to reach more people. So for under $750 we're able to sort of give more professionalism to our filming of the Cottage Conversation series. It's kind of a shame that we weren't able to do that in our first year, but at the same time by running through the program and having a good track record in our first year we were able to attract a donor to help us put this information online. Um, for us one of the big reasons to do social media has been that idea of user generated content and reaching new audiences and this is a photograph of a group called now debate this Um, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with that group but it's a national debate competition for high schoolers and um, this past year they were debating The most influential president, and the two finalists were debating whether or not George Washington or President Lincoln was the most, or the, the greatest, or the most influential US president. And so the organization wanted to bring them out to our site. Every single student in this picture was blogging, filming. Facebooking or doing something having to do with our site and posting it to the Now Debate This blog feed. So it wasn't on our blog in particular, but we were aware it was there. So, you know, there was no need for us to edit or vet their commentary. It was clearly separate from us yet about our site. And so we ended up linking to that site through our blog in order to drive people to their site to see sort of what these students had been saying about us. In a lot of ways, user-generated content can be a good measure of your audience engagement, but it is not the only measure of audience engagement. Um, Some people, as Kara mentioned, aren't as likely to, they're going to be your observers, or what sometimes people refer to as lurkers. An interesting phenomenon we've had happen is people uh, checking out our Facebook page, or checking out our blog, and then emailing the staff separately through our email account to comment on something, because they don't want to comment on the blog or Facebook page. Um, just because they're not comfortable or, you know, there are various reasons why people do that. Um, our Facebook page is in its infancy. We've had it for three months. We have just over 150 fans. Our post rating's pretty good, though. We have a 4.7 post rating. Uh, we've archived three of our exhibits through this. We have five photo albums and two videos that are linked in through this. Our blog automatically feeds onto the wall, so every blog post we do is getting double duty. Not only is it appearing on our blog, it's appearing here, and so that's a great sort of efficiency that we have. Um, One thing I would say is that we don't get high marks yet for audience participation on our Facebook page. It's just not happening for us. We recently tried to solicit feedback on a new online version of this program that we did. It's called Lincoln's Toughest Decisions, and this is the debating emancipation part of that program. This won an AAM Silver Muse Award last year. And um, partly because of that, receiving that award, we were able to get a grant from Motorola to put the debating emancipation portion online. That's going to launch this September. And so it's going to be through our website. We wanted to solicit feedback while it was still in its testing phase. So we did this through an email blast. Then we posted it to Facebook for our fans to see. And then after that, we posted it on our blog. So we tried to go with sort of the group most closely tied to us to sort of the group that we had the least direct connection with, our blog readers. And I have to say, it kind of bombed. Um, you know, we, we thought w- when we've, up until this point, people have only been able to access this program on site. And there was an intense demand from teachers to have an off-site version because they wanted to be able to use it in their classroom across the country without having to bring all 50 of their students from California to DC. So that was a great reason for us to put this online in the first place. But then in terms of getting their feedback on it, in in the time frame that they actually can comment on us and we can easily change things, um, the feedback has really only worked with the email blast. People who got the email blast responded to us. People on Facebook and the blog, not so much. And I actually think part of that reason might be that our target audience for this feedback was were teachers, and we don't have that many high school teachers that are Facebook fans. So the audiences weren't lining up, and I think that that might have been one of the, the... the things that we really overlooked when we thought, oh, this will be a great way to get additional feedback. Um, what it did do was give our audience on Facebook and the blog uh, feeling that they were getting sort of a first look at something. So there was a little bit of interest in that. You know, we had some people, again, circumventing the comment board and writing to our email accounts about certain things. Um, so we know that people were checking it out via those sources, but it wasn't generating quite the conversation we were kind of hoping for. Um, the last thing uh, that we are doing that sort of feeds into all of this is a new online uh, site called, or an online forum called uh, Gosaic, which is run by Heritage Travel, which is a for-profit subsidiary of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And we are hosting the Lincoln Circle. Um, the Lincoln Travel Circle is basically, it's going to provide all this information on Lincoln for the Heritage Traveler. Uh, it'll overlap somewhat with the Civil War circle that they'll be doing. Um, the nice thing about this is that we're able to recycle all of our blog entries um, that relate to this. Things like, you know, we recently did um, a blog post about our top 10 newest books on Lincoln since there are a bazillion that came out this year because of the bicentennial. So it's sort of our staff picks. That's the kind of thing they want for this. They want, you know, suggested reading lists, suggested itineraries. If you have three days in DC or two days in Springfield, what are the Lincoln sites that you have to see and why and what order should you try to do them and things like that. So it's good and that it's a lot of content we've already created and we're able to repurpose it for a different type of site and different type of audience. These are very travel, this is travel-specific, people that want to go visit these places. So I think it'll have a good payoff. Again, it's in its infancy. Um, this is just now launching. They don't have the full functionality yet. It's just basically the page so, so you could see it's coming. Um, so keep this in mind and check back, certainly. And uh, if you have any comments on it, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested in running a circle, I'm sure that Heritage Travel would be interested in hearing that because they're really trying to um, beef this up and make it more robust. So this is basically how all of our social media feeds into one another. Um, we have almost everything feeding into the blog. And then the blog gets repurposed on Facebook and also we're able uh, automatically. And then we have been laboring to repurpose stuff for the Gozaic site. Um, but the thing that really got it all started is our WordPress blog. When we first started this, um, the site wasn't open yet. We had had the website running for about two years. Um, But before we wanted to, before we engage in any program, we really try to decide how it's going to benefit our online presence, how it meets our marketing goals, and how it will benefit existing site programming and operations. But in the case of our blog, we did this before we really had a lot of site operations. Our operation was restoration work for the most part. People couldn't visit the site. So when we first started the blog, it was about engaging people who couldn't become on-site visitors right away. They were going to have to wait a year or two in order to become on-site visitors. So our goal was more about, um, we wanted to create an outlet for sharing new scholarship, informal ideas and processes like our interpretive process or evaluative process for the site. And it was a way of doing it more quickly, reaching new audiences and creating a path for their involvement. The content management system allowed allows our visitors to sort of customize their feet. So we have some visitors that are clearly only interested in the preservation topics we have and then we have other visitors who really don't care about the preservation information they want to hear more about the Lincoln stuff. Sometimes those that content overlaps but they're able to sort of customize it so they're not just getting like a newsletter where it is what it is and you take it or leave it or an email blast which you might be so overwhelmed with that you begin deleting them just out of habit because you don't have the time to read them anymore. Um, At the point where we started this, every audience was a new audience for us though. So this whole idea of reaching a new audience, for us it was, all all the audiences were a new audience. No one had heard about our site before. It was, you know, our main focus was boosting awareness. Um, And it was important at that point we had, okay, at that point our goals for the site were laid out but have changed over time. At that point, we weren't open yet. Now that we are, we're still growing and expanding. Our goals are somewhat in flux, and that's an important thing to keep in mind because it's hard to have a targeted strategy for your blog if the goals for your site itself are sort of in a state of flux. So I wanted to quickly go over sort of my posting strategies. Uh, We do try to lay out sort of like what Kara was talking about, a schedule. So I might have like monthly and then broken down into weekly ideas for for what I want to write about. Um, our, what I call a targeted or a niche post is going to coincide with something specific, whether it's an anniversary, a date, a specific audience, like if we're reaching out specifically to the green preservation audience. Um, these are great because you can plan and write them in, in advance. It's, it's filling maybe a void in interpretation or outreach. Our focus is on Lincoln's presidency, um, so that in some ways might limit what we have to talk about. The whole story of Lincoln's presidency and the Civil War is so broad, Um, if we have maybe more in-depth content that we don't have time to share on our website, this is a way for us to share it. And one of the examples I want to show you all is our spring 2009 photo contest. In short, since we're running out of time here, um, this reached across a bunch of different spectrums of our site. Shortly after opening, we realized that allowing interior photographs was really disruptive to the tour itself, so we canceled that. So for the last year people have been unable to take interior photographs of the cottage but we had a lot of requests for that we'd started engaging this amateur dc photography audience and knew that there was interest from them to come and have a special program at the site so we created photo day and it was set in spring good season for photos in dc lots of pretty uh, cherry blossoms and, and apple blossoms and stuff like that we limited the size to 20 this was an overwhelming success. We had all 20 slots filled. People paid 20 bucks a head in order to come to this program. After taking the photos, they submitted images to our photo contest, which was exclusively for people who had come to Photo Day. Um, the staff had a quick vote of their top 10. That top 10 got posted online for public voting. Um, the winning image received 2,000 votes. On average, we were getting 400 to 800 views and votes on the blog per day because of this program. The winning uh, image then was turned into a postcard for sale in our shop. And it has become our number two seller, the number one seller being the classic exterior shot of the cottage. So this was really like a win-win all across the board. And one of the best things is that, of course, everyone wants their friends and family and coworkers to vote for their photo, right? So you get people like Nancy Russo who had no idea we existed until her coworker Les Ward said, "Vote for my picture of the cottage you know so you know, did Nancy come to visit? That, we don't really know if she came in the months after that. I searched her name in our ticketing system, and it didn't come up. But that doesn't mean she didn't buy a ticket on site as a walk-up. We didn't really have a way to judge whether or not those particular people who voted ended up coming to the site yet. But it certainly raised awareness, which was our number one goal, because that's something we're still trying to do. I still meet people in D.C. every day who don't know we exist. So just awareness is one of our major focuses. The random post. It is exactly as it sounds. It's observational. Um, it's good for occasional phenomena, unforeseen opportunities, things that you just didn't see coming. And my favorite example of this is the Kissing Lincoln Penny blog. Um, I was home one night and I uh, was watching The Simpsons.
6: <laughs>
5: as I do frequently. <laughs> and uh, there was this great great episode um, where sort of one of the sub-story lines was about Bart filling this coin collecting thing and the one penny the one thing that he still had to get was the 1907 kissing Lincoln penny and it, this is actually something that would be impossible to do if someone did have a misstrike or something like that but this coincided almost directly with all this hype over the four new pennies that were coming out from the US Mint for the Lincoln Bicentennial so leading up to the Lincoln Bicentennial is when all this came about Um, When They were still trying to decide who was going to be featured on these pennies. So I decided that night, all right, I'm going to do a post about this. I did it from home, which is one of the great things about WordPress. You don't have to have any special software. You could do it from anywhere, anywhere you have an internet connection. There was no image of this Kissing Lincoln penny, so I grabbed a a screenshot um, from a streaming video feed. This accounts for basically one-fifth of all people who end up on our blog (laughs) see this and come from this. And you can see what people search to find you. And invariably, every week, one of the top five search terms is kissing Lincolns. (laughs) And they come to our site first. Um, How many of these people searching for the Simpsons reference are coming to visit our site? Again, it's kind of hard to say, but all of those people now know about President Lincoln's cottage. And I can guarantee you that probably none of them knew about us before that. The series post? Um, basically a multi-part post and one of the best ones we did on that I think is 100 things to know. Um, This had a big payoff. We had five different staff members work on posts. We had ten entries. It was you know the ultimate create awareness and let people know more about your site. Um, This ranged from facts about Mary Lincoln's time at the soldier's home to what are ten different things I can see if I come to visit your site. What's nearby? We're in a residential area of D.C. that most D.C. people don't even frequent. So a lot of people don't even know what's out there and around. And there's a lot of good history within a two-mile radius of our site. So it was a good way to let people know about that. Reviews and meta posts are usually really quick and simple things. It's usually when we're trying to direct people to a, a, you know, a great New York Times story, maybe about our site or about something about Lincoln in general. There's some great New York Times blogs. And um, sometimes you'll get really interesting postings there from people talking about like the Lincoln and the Lincoln Vampire Slayer book that's going to be coming out, the novel, um, just really funky things like that that you're not anticipating. One of my favorites is Lincoln and Food, and this is an interesting thing I wanted to bring up because this is a Lincoln Foodways blog that had a two-month lifespan, three-month lifespan. Um, basically. And it was just for the Bicentennial. It was for a finite period of time. And there are a lot of blogs like that that are designed for a specific campaign, a specific event, a specific candidate, things like that. Our blog was designed to have an infinite timeline. There is no known end date to our blog. We don't have any plans to end the blog. There are historic sites that use blogs exclusively for the restoration portion of a project. Montpelier is a good example of that, but it's lived, you know, it's it's basically, it's continuing on past that. Villa Finale, another national trust historic site, uses the blog as their primary website. And so that's one of the nice things about WordPress blogs is that it is flexible. At the same time, um, you know, you do have a template that you have to stick with. Um, we've found that it works well for us, though. This is a snapshot of our WordPress stats. In our first year, our average daily views were 20, <laughs> which is kind of sad, um, but it quickly, you know, picked up. 2008 was our first year open to the public. There are a lot more searches for Lincoln Cottage at that point. 2009, um, we're continuing to beat our scores from the year before, and that's actually one of my sort of internal goals: is for us to try to, you know, match or better our statistics from the month or the quarter before. That's sometimes hard, because inevitably, spring is our biggest time period, because that's when most people are coming to DC and visit. And that's when we get most people um, trying to hit our site. Our WordPress general stats. um, We have 272 posts at this point, 94,000 views. That compares to approximately 170,000 views on our website, similar to Drayton Halls. And is everyone clear on the difference between views and hits? Okay, good. Basically, you know, I mean, a hit, if you download a page and you have 20 images on that page, that's going to be 21 hits, whereas really, you know, you're more interested in the views. People are viewing that one page. So we count the views, not the hits. Our busiest day, 2,500. Um, The grand opening was a really big day for us. Tons of people were searching that. NPR did a story on us recently. Tons of things on that. One interesting thing that we found out about the blog, though, is that a lot of people were going searching for us finding the blog before our regular website and trying to figure out how to come visit us. And so we'd get comments, where do I, I don't understand how to get there, how do I find you? And so we created a separate page just for visiting the cottage. Are these people turning into visitors? Some of them, yes, we do get people say, sometimes they don't necessarily know that they saw our blog or that our blog's not our website. I found that that confusion is very, very common. People will say, oh, I saw, I read about you. And then once, once you get to talk to them, you realize that they actually saw the neighborhood blog you know, that mentioned you or linked to your site, not your site in particular. Um, But one thing I have to say is that since we are a site that has limited visitation, um, doing things like this, reaching all these people, having these statistics on how many people we reach is basically a good way for us to show our current donors how we are reaching out to more than just 30,000 people a year. Because a lot of them care about that. They don't necessarily like the fact that we have a built-in restriction on visitation, and this is a way for us to get beyond that. So that's the end. If any of you have any comments or questions for me, um, that's my contact information. And now we will open it up for questions and a discussion on what's working for you and what's not working for you.
0: Let me maybe start out by asking, how many of you have a blog associated with your site? One, two, three, okay. How many of you have a Facebook page associated with your site? More, okay. How many of you are using Flickr or Picasa or one of those photo sharing sites? Less. And then how many of you, there was? How many of you are actually twittering? People tweeting, twittering. What's the? How
4: many of you are tweeting right now? <laughs>
0: and then are folks using other social media that we have not talked about that wasn't addressed? Um, okay. Yes.
5: We're next week. This week, maybe even we're launching a complete new website that's all um, basically a blog or entirely interactive, like our whole website. Really? So people can log on to the new website. They can create a user account
7: so they can kind of manipulate. Like they can sign in and then manipulate the website to their specific interests. Like so a business. Business, Yeah. That? And which site are you with? I'm with the Metro Parks. Toledo
5: area, mm. so and we have historical sites folded into that park district. So I actually see the historic sites there. So this allows them to like kind of hone in on nature, or hone in on history, or hone in on both.
0: And do you have the web address for that that we can share?
5: Yes. Um, <laughs> it's www. I think is what it is. Dot <laughs> Metro Parks Toledo. So www.metroparkstoledo.com? Yeah. I think if, if you Google Metro Parks Toledo or Toledo Metro Parks, it'll come up right away. Great.
2: Just this week. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, announce today we are launching with ASLH, I'm from American Heritage. Uh, we're launching today heritagesites.com, which has been in development for two years. All the members of ASLH are already in the site, and so we're now turning it over to the members of ASLH to post put all kinds of content about their archives,
3: collections. We just launched it today. We've been working on it two years. Ago. Uh,
2: it's free for all members of ASLH. It's been endorsed by the board. We've been working on it
7: with them for about two years. The but site. not just archives, your collections or your visitation. It's a
2: heritage tourism site. That's right. Uh, that's right. So not to make people think that if they all have an archives or a library. Right. Well, the archives is a very interesting component. Alan Weinstein is on our board. And what we're trying to do is get one site so that you can search through all the ASLH mm-hmm. members and get information on their archives. So if you're doing a book on the Blue Balls, you can just go through all the sites, so and we're really uh, looking for help and participation, and comments. This is version one It's Just launched. and uh, we need. We're we're going to give everybody usernames and passwords to update their own data, add more stuff, post stuff. And we would really love comments from people on them. Get easier and more useful. And the taxonomy alone is driving us crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had a Facebook. Very MySpace page, and that that's really been dropping by the wayside in favor yeah, of Facebook.
4: Ours as well. We had one, in, and in, the, in its inception, it did some wonderful things. Everyone was on MySpace, but that was about two years ago. And uh, we have uh, one of our major fundraising efforts is a festival called the Taste of Montgomery County, that's happening in two days. So um, we received almost i mean so many of our visitors and i think probably about 80 percent of our bands that we contracted before that we got through myspace it was Mm. so now i update myspace kind of as a cursory measure but i don't spend too much time on it at all it just seems like the audiences are dropping
3: off i'm curious to know
6: more about i think it's very commendable that you uh, Research the the name from the, the contact on the internet. With did they come through our through our uh, facility? Um, and I'm wondering how people are going about that and how much of that is actually happening. Because uh, with marketing, I'm always real suspicious about all of yeah. the and the flurry and the press. And you know what really matters is do they do they really come? So
5: I think I think part of that might be a need for a more targeted study because one thing I alluded to is we do. Um, online evaluation of everyone who visits the site. You get um, an email from our director saying, "Thanks for visiting. This is some of the stuff we're doing. Take this." Um. For for a while, we suspended it because we were doing on-site evaluation. We didn't want to hit people with two separate evaluations, um, but it's an online evaluation. Right now, it'll say, "You know, you found out of us through." magazine, website, blog, but as I mentioned, a lot of people get confused about the difference between a website and a blog, Um, especially because for some sites, like I said, the blog is their website. Um, So I think what we would have to do is do something even more in depth than that and try to get specific with people, and that would have to be, I think, be a one-on-one interview so that you can ask follow-up questions. Right now, most of our uh, data on it is anecdotal. Um, When we know people saw our blog and we were able to verify that by talking to them, it's been just conversations on site, hearing about stuff like that. And interestingly, a lot of times it'll be someone who saw our blog, but they themselves weren't necessarily interested in coming to visit. But when their parents came into town, you know, dad's a Lincoln buff and I read about your site or I, I heard a great review on TripAdvisor, they told me to come, you know, and things like that. Um, so, it's a lot of it's sort of secondhand, thirdhand. Craig had a good point that he was talking about it. how do you know, you know, what if they've seen three different things about your site? Which one is it that sort of pushed them over the edge to come visit? Maybe they saw the ad, read a blog, and saw it on TripAdvisor. Is it the combination that made them come?
0: How many of you, and I've heard some of sites doing this, some museums doing this, doing perceptions for Facebook fans only? Has anyone tried that?
7: We mm-hmm. did a YouTube one, but.
0: And what was the response?
7: Zero. Zero.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Lots of people talked about it. It was tweeted, retweeted, the whole bit. And really? no one identified themselves. When I mean, we did it in conjunction with another event, no one identified themselves specifically as a YouTuber. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we have to be careful, though, about always the, me- the measure being people through the door. Mm-hmm. Because as people are using their mm-hmm. websites differently to reach out to audiences worldwide mm-hmm. and having their collections available and research available, we're reaching out to audiences in different ways, so it's not necessarily, it shouldn't just be the measure through the door. And I think your point, Aaron, about funders, about how many people you're reaching, especially if you're measuring it all on your website as to what they're accessing, we're reaching people in different ways, so I think you just need to be careful about that being the only measure. Maybe if you told them they were welcome to come in their pajamas, they would have (laughs) 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 changed.
5: Little nightshirt action on the second floor of the cottage.
7: Yes, ma'am. Are you using the terms Web 2.0 and social media interchangeably?
4: Because that's the name of this
7: session, right? It's right. really always it's been about social media. So
4: what are those interchangeable terms? I try not to use them interchangeably because social media is a smaller part right. of right. this umbrella right. theory of Web 2.0. I mean, the things that Craig and Aaron are doing are vastly different. I'm doing, but that's all under the same umbrella of Web like 2.0, which is reaching audiences in new ways using new technology.
5: And social media is one of those.
8: Yeah. Um, you commented that uh, visitors are looking for narrative and visitors are looking for options. Um, do you kind of see an inherent logical contradiction in that, and how do you reconcile that? Um,
0: that I think that's something we struggle with in the creation of the DVD. That we didn't want to have to reintroduce uh, historical figures of our site at each spot where we were talking about them. And I think uh, our experience uh, in, in working with visitors when we handed them this DVD, which was for, for many people, I don't, I don't want to touch that, I want to break it, I don't, you know, there, there was a fear of that. They, they also wanted to be told, okay, what do I do now? Where do I go? What's the best way for me to do this? What's the best way for me to understand this? And so we. We thought people would really just kind of zigzag through the property and you know, kind of going in, in every direction. In fact, we, we talked internally, do we give each spot numbers? Do we give them some sort of um, geographical identification? Do, how do we do this without you know, giving a, uh, an intended path of progression through the site? Uh, but I think our experience in just working with people one-on-one was, what's the best way for me to do this and what's the best way for me to, to understand it? Um, what we found in terms of user options is that people can now have the freedom to move ahead and to just skip ahead depending on their time and interest. Okay. This or in the back? Uh, as far as using your DVD
2: player on side and whatnot, uh, do people have any problems, I mean this is kind of basic, with like Sun Yes, We're not just and, trying to
0: see it. Right. We, we yeah. found a very low-cost option um, online that we bought sunshades. They're not the most attractive thing, but they make it work. Okay, so you can yeah. see it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, are you're yep. and, and what we found also is that people will often find a shady spot somewhere um, mm-hmm. at a picnic table or we put out, we did put out benches on the landscape, a few here and there, and people are just sitting and watching the whole thing
2: from a very uh, nice location down by the river or underneath the tent somewhere. Did, did have any issues with like the machine to just... Not working
0: or that kind of thing. We we did receive grant funding, and part of the grant funding purchased forty units. And so far, only two have died in the two and a half years, two years that we've been doing this.
3: That's great.
0: Yeah, and we purposely bought uh, you know something cheap and off the shelf so that we could replace it. And
2: they're becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. A converse to have in the Facebook reception was we found, we had a couple of programs this year where we marketed it on Facebook before we had even done press releases and we sold out and had to add new programs three times before we even saw a press release in the papers. So, um, and we don't have more than 200 fans but mm-hmm. it, 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 this particular niche really works. So mm-hmm. there, there is a way, I think, to generate interest within the Facebook communities. Um, and so that was very encouraging. Was somebody Karen. Um, you mentioned that it it's important to get permission
6: from <laughs> your higher up, So I was hoping you three, maybe folks in the audience, could talk a little bit about how you help some of those higher-ups get over the fear factor <laughs> of this?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get people that are afraid, you know, we're going to get sued for violating First Amendment mm-hmm.
6: rights if we take down a Facebook post. Mm-hmm. And, and I can throw out the stats as much as I want about how it helps broaden the audiences, about engagement, but there's still a, a high fear factor with some of people. And I'm just wondering how some of you all have
0: maybe overcome that. Actually, Karen, I had a question for you that. Day into that, but you said it's about a 30-minute a day investment that you made. Was that something that you were directed to do or something that you said, I want to now take these 30 minutes that I was doing this, put that somewhere else, and now I want to spend
6: 30 minutes doing <coughs> social media."
4: Yeah, that's that's kind of what it evolved into. In the beginning of social media, and and uh, I and my boss, she's, uh, her name was Cindy Catlin, who got gut to the public, Wonderful, and she was kind of a visionary in that she saw there's an in, in inherent value in some online initiatives. So we both, you know, kind of dove into MySpace and Facebook very early and, and together. So in the beginning, there was a lot of, oh, look at this. And so there was a lot more of a, of a time investment. This has kind of evolved into something where I can go in in the morning and, and you know, hit 30 minutes responding to our Facebook followers. And then in the afternoon again, I'll check to see if anyone's tweeted about us. So I'll, I'll have TweetDeck running in the background to see if anyone, you know, vendors coming out in Europe. So everyone's talking about that. So yeah, there's, it, it varies, but we've gotten it down to a pretty nice science. And uh, that I've been blessed. Most of my higher ups and my board have been very. Uh, open-minded and
5: very uh, forward-thinking as far as social media initiatives. Aaron, well, and I think, I think I might be able to help a little with that because I think what you might be fundamentally asking about is sort of a control issue in a lot of ways um, because a lot of people worry about the loss of control. Um, a lot of us are probably used to a very um, rigid hierarchy of communications you know, communications aren't coming out from every single staff member, they come from the communications department or the communications manager or director. Um, And this idea that all staff might be putting out their own thoughts about things is really scary to people. And I know that um, one way that one organization dealt with that is that they managed to get, basically by outlining what the strategy would be and creating um, an outlet for vetting so that there, there was sort of, it wasn't that every single person was able to upload it. I'm the person at our site who, who vets stuff, so everything pretty much has to run through me. Um, a lot of times I'm just doing little formatting and editing things, but if I notice that there's something that's really not appropriate for our blog um, or that there might be a legal issue, I can raise that and flag it and deal with it before it goes live. Um, likewise we don't have comments freely streaming. There are some downsides to that, but it means that when we get these wacky spam things or uh, real you know, hatred coming through in comments that doesn't really seem to be contributing to any sort of conversation, we block that. Um, and so maybe it means having pre-approved people who do the posts and a very clear chain of command for how this will be reviewed so that there is no risk of that. The, the trick is to keep it nimble. So that you don't end up getting bogged down in this bureaucratic chain of command. Um, But the first place I actually learned about sort of that kind of strategy is that it's what the World Bank uses. Talk about you know a a, an organization that has you know is going to have a lot of fears about legal things and all this other stuff and doesn't want you know their staff saying this or that and they want to make sure it goes through a clear chain of command. Think tanks do it that way as well. So that does that help or?
2: One of the things that I if I can help on this is and it's a little vague to say this, but you need if you're doing someone uh, special especially Twitter, maybe Facebook, but you need someone with a good sense
3: of judgment. Mm-hmm. That's really which is I highly recommend you not give it to them. and there's
2: a temptation to give it to somebody who's young, a intern, you know, coming in from college, because they're twittering already. Just because they twitter does not mean they, they have good
3: judgment. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: The other, the other thing is that they tend to be very, I mean, it, you need someone who has a knowledge of mm-hmm. what, your, what mm-hmm. your organization is. Um, and I'll, Twitter tends to succeed
3: the best when, it is, when it, it's a casual language. Um, I, I work for the Minnesota
2: Historical Society in their Twitter feed. Um, I also talk with other state agencies in Minnesota, like the, the DNR. The DNR is very tightly, the, uh, the DNR Department of National Resources in Minnesota, they're very tightly controlled. Like the Twitter feed has to go three people mm-hmm. before it gets posted, and it is a news feed, and it reflects it. There's nobody that subscribes to it. I mean, they do subscribe to it, but it, but it lacks that, that nice conversational quality.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and there's this, you have to get that balance between between having that conversation, the casualness, and also having very good judgment. And, and the best thing is, is that when, you, when somebody is doing a Twitter feed, that, that it's that
5: person has good knowledge of the organization, but also has very good judgment. Yeah. In the back. Uh,
8: that's one of the things I wanted to, it kind of jumps off of you. Um, I work for a state institution that's also a nonprofit, And so the fear factor was huge, because we have all of these government layers on top of what our layers are. And The edict went out, absolutely no social working under any circumstances whatsoever until we figure out what we're going to do. And I, as part of the education and outreach, couldn't wait for them to figure this out. And so it kind of goes with the trust. I went to the director, said, let me at least start Baby Steps. And we're starting with the National History Day blog. We've got an events facilities management blog that's going. they're starting to feel a little more comfortable. There's nothing that makes those kind of people feel more comfortable than success. So if you can talk to them a little bit, you know, get somebody to trust you enough to start on the little steps. I'm hoping eventually. Now I don't know what the end story is going to be, but I really think that by the end of the century, we'll have it.
5: <laughs> That's good. Yes, in the back. Yep. Um, I just might mention that uh, the Farmers Museum, the York State Historical Association in Cooperstown apparently has addressed this problem. They not only have blogging guidelines, and, and there are examples of corporate and organizational blocking mm-hmm. guidelines online, if you want to look for an example to, to,
6: to write for yourself. But they get the nimbleness factor dealt with because they have a new media committee that has like five people on it. And all you have to do to post the stuff, have one other person on the committee. That, so you, so that gives you, so that, that if the one better isn't in the office that day, you don't know, get hung up and you find somebody else who looks at it. That way you've got two sets of eyes going through it, two sets of judgments being offered, and it seems to allow them to pop stuff up very quickly. Can you give up some-
5: Sorry, New York State. Oh. Sure. Yeah. Just to answer that question um, that you posed earlier, as a, as a as a higher up, I guess, as a director, um, I think at least the term, my concern would be one of time, structure, and that sense of judgment as well. Because what does go out there represents the institution. So you do want to be sure that there is that strategy or structure
2: in place. And also that there's some time guidelines as well, because as all of you have said, this could just be a variety in which time can sink your time. Uh, uh, staff can sink your time. So where's the structure? And there's so many demands on all of us as historic sites for our, for time management. So the more structural strategy, and also I think the better, we can be at showing the benefits of, of uh, of these barriers, social media, etc., then uh, the more compliments that both higher up. Right. I think, and I mean, getting back
8: to your comment of, of it's not necessarily visitors through the door. I mean, I agree with that, but
0: what then? What is the measure? Yeah. Um, and how do we show those benefits? And, and Aaron, your comment that about showing to donors that people are having meaningful experiences on your, your website or through these these new options is great.
5: Well, and Ann mentioned um, your, the ads that you've run on Facebook. Yeah, if you want to just yeah, comment on that real quick. We, uh, Facebook is the first thing that uh, we tried it on SLM,
6: our Ford house. We have about 40,000 visitors a year. We are not engaging in our community. And so we're so scared about putting Facebook page up page. we're like, who's going to be a fan. So once I like made all my friends become fans, I <laughs> made all my relatives in New York and New Jersey were fans of this place in Michigan. It's kind of leveled off. We have about 300. And I was like, well, maybe I'll run an ad. So if you have a few hundred dollars, we have a thousand fans in. It was in a matter of week a, a matter of days. And so these were people we could target very easily on Facebook. It was great.
5: And how much was it? Sorry. You
6: know what? We paid by the click. And so yeah. Ended up, I ended up cutting it off because I was getting too many. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think I want to keep paying for this. Mm-hmm. So um, what I did was I targeted. Um, 25 and older, who lived within a 50-mile radius of Detroit, who were interested in art, architecture, Ford Motor Company, classic cars, you can target very specifically. And so what came up was, you know, I'm sure you've seen that if you have Facebook page, you get these little ads. So I had an ad with um, Ford Hudson, You know, become become a fan of, I can't remember exactly what I, it was, just one little line. So then we paid by the click, and so, I max out every day on the amount because you set a limit to how much you want to spend. You can spend $10 if you want a day. But I, um, I think I put my limit at $50 a day. And so um, after about, after $400 I was having to messed up. <laughs> but what we found was an error to your point about how you're not getting to feed that. Having those 300 people originally, they were kind of fake fans because yeah. you know, we asked to do it. But once we got the real mm-hmm. people who were on there, now we have a lot more engagement from them, yeah. and they're they're giving us more feedback, and they're you know liking things, and so it's, it was definitely
5: worth it. So how many did you get out of that, Ann? New fans? Um, about 700. Yeah.
6: Oops. In literally a matter of days, it's only
7: been up since July 3rd. Here, and since you money, um, company, like I can keep our Facebook off on my desk, but I cannot. Chat online and I cannot get to my Facebook inbox, you know, because I log in under my personal account. Mm-hmm.
5: So that was a technology control that our organization, so I can't sit and chat with, you know, my girlfriend in South Carolina while I'm at work, you know. Yeah. So that was a control too that that might be a concern of the directors, the time piece, and uh, that there are levels. There's someone in the back.
8: Though. I'm curious if you have it. Social media, like Second Life, Mm -hmm. putting your museum in Second Life. I know the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown has has a site, and I'm curious if any of you have thought of that. We've thought of it. We have not tried it yet. like a a
0: little bit of a frontier or uncorpuscled. So, I say if you were here for the very beginning with with fear, no, we have not. (laughs) (laughs)
5: That's something I'm
7: fearful of.
6: No,
5: we haven't tried it yet. Yeah.
7: Too much time.
4: so we think the Halsbox Museum has done it. The Farmer's um, Museum has done it. Um,
6: uh, Sunset's so, 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 custodian has done it. The um, museum is on. And I was just curious. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, something that nobody has really brought
6: up, um, working with minors mm-hmm.
4: on the web. I run the Indiana Junior
5: Historical Society, and I just started a Facebook page a month ago after a lot of trouble with my higher-ups, if you will. Um, giving me permission. I'm just curious if anybody else
7: has um, specifically targeted kids under the age
4: of 18, and how your bosses are handling that, and any advice.
5: Really what was the what group are you with again? I'm with the Indiana Junior Historical Society. Oops. Away
6: from the younger group right now. We have a program for them, okay. and plus, I didn't want to pay for them clicking on that when I knew they weren't we weren't going to engage them in any way. So we purposely
5: stayed away from that. So we're kind of in the same boat. Um, ironically, one of the miners who's posted on our Facebook wall is our director's son. Yeah, well, <laughs> daughter, <daughter's> fan. <laughs> yeah uh, but that's not. Um, I mean, in a way, the now debate this group. You know, they weren't all 18 yet. Um, they were mostly juniors and some seniors in high school, um, or juniors and seniors in high school. It was a mix. Um, so that was really, it, it was orchestrated through an outside organization, is sort of how we've been able to do that. But we aren't really targeting that audience ourselves. And so I'm sorry, but we don't have an example for you. We
2: haven't done, a uh, Minnesota, starting to say we haven't done a lot. Um, we have done some targeted events,
8: uh, in the particular of the uh, National History Day. Sure. And more on social media with the next National History Day coming up, but uh,
7: that's really the limit for us. to we found in our area that that's, high school teachers aren't a good, that's not a good way to contact them. Mm-hmm. They, they
6: actually avoid Facebook and Twitter. Well, and right? they can't get on it at school. Right. right. But they avoid it because they don't want to be friends with students
2: right. or any of those private teachers. So there are two different... There are two videos. Well, there's, uh, YouTube is blocked. I think YouTube is working on an
8: educational channel um, mm. that that will work with uh, schools not blocking it. Um, iTunes University also has one where
3: you can run the same videos. Um, and there's also, and I can't Say like teachers' tube.
2: I, I won't. Our, uh, our our education department uses that and they'll repurpose. We run our videos in several different sites. Mm-hmm. We run it on a local site called Min Stories from Minnesota, so we get a lot of views on that. We do uh, this teacher tube. We do YouTube. When um, we have enough, we'll probably do iTunes University. But
0: there are sites that aren't blocked by schools that they can let them in. And videos are really good. We've we'll come to the
3: end of our time, so just one last. On that um, question. With the Mariners Museum in Virginia,
7: um, we actually just instituted a youth advisory council. They have to actually apply for it. Um, there's eight seats and there's great competition for it already and it's only been up less than a year. Um, but what they do is advise us on what's out there on the horizon. Um, and they do the input to some of our social networking sites, but it's completely vetted by their keeper. one of our staff members, our web mistress, and um, so nothing can go on there without her seeing it, but they are allowed to put it in and they have actually helped shape some of our social media sites um, through and in the summertime they meet um, twice a month and then they actually come in and volunteer, some of them twice a week, so it's it's been really worthwhile it just takes a lot of soda (laughs) um, to keep them happy
5: did I spell your? Is it uh, two R's or oh Mariners? I thought you said Bariners. I'm like I've never heard of that. <laughs> right. Good. Great. Excellent. That I'm familiar with.
0: Fashion. We'll be posting these on each of our blogs. <laughs> I Just make that commitment for Kara and Aaron right now. So you can get these notes. You can also contact us. Individually, that way as well. And just um, because I didn't get my bragging rights in when I gave my presentation, the DVD that we put together did win um, an ASLH award of merit this year. So I have to get that in. <clears throat> my Thank you all so much. Really enjoyed it. And you all did help me answer some questions. So well done. <laughs> Thank you.
8: Nice job. Thanks. I'm Aaron, uh, Aaron, I'm David. I'm with Clifton.
5: Oh, great. Is Frank here? He is coming today. I don't oh. know that he's in town yet. Cool.
2: Well, so, but yeah,
5: he's I, here.
2: I heard so many nice things about you. It's oh, really great. Nice
5: Thank you so you. much. Nice no. job. No.
2: no, yeah. Well, I, when yeah. he's he shown me around, it's been after an hours, and I came to the preview reception, and, and I think you were uh, running around. Yeah. Nice uh, job. Hey, thanks.
5: I uh, think it saves that, but I think it's just new
3: documents document.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I just decided to do it in Word so that we could just sort of launch it. Right where would I be able to
7: get these notes?
5: We're gonna post them on our blogs, and is that okay. uh Wallis versus Wallis. Versus, versus Wallis. And what is yours? Mine's lincolncottage.wordpress.org. Right. Right. Dot
0: dot no, but I'm not going to call it. Wordpress. Oh. Done. Yeah. Wordpress. Yeah,
8: Wordpress. A oh, Wordpress. wordpress. Sorry.